week's episode of the Vel News Podcast, again, brought to you by VeloSwap, the country's largest used bike expo and swap. And it is going on this coming Saturday in Denver, Colorado at the National Western Complex. And folks, it's an amazingly large exhibition hall filled with used bikes, used bike parts, accessories, soft goods, hard goods. You can come and shop or you can sell your own used bike parts. And we have a fun extra going on at VeloSwap. Our sponsor, Saris, is going to have H3 Smart Trainers set up, hooked up to Zwift, and they're going to be running trainer races all day long. You can come race your friends, race solo. Uh, Dave Toll, the legendary race announcer, is going to be there calling the races. And you can race for a chance to win a bunch of cool prizes, uh, a brand new Saris H3 Smart Trainer, a year-long subscription to Zwift, VeloPress Books, subscription to VeloNews, all sorts of good stuff. So come on out to VeloSwap. It is going on this weekend, Saturday, November 2nd, at the National Western Complex in Denver, Colorado. Tickets are available. Go to VeloNews.com. We have a banner at the top of the page. Click through, buy your tickets, and I will see you there at VeloSwap. Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here at the Vel News World Headquarters coming to you from a snowy, cold day in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, ski slopes are officially open. Uh, we have inches and inches of snow on the ground here in Colorado. All the cyclists have hung up their bikes and gotten out their Nordic skis and they're skiing to work and doing all the fun winter activities that endurance athletes do when it gets cold out. Not cold in Spain. Today we're going to talk with Andrew Hood. Coming to us from the man cave in Spain, Andy, I, I, I assume you're not schlissing your way to work today. Uh, I, I assume it's another pleasant day in northern Spain. It is indeed, Fred. I was down in Madrid over the weekend, just sunny. People are still out on the on the terrace, out on the decks. You know, kind of the Indian summer lingers down here quite well into uh, late October, November-ish. Uh, when I saw the snow, I was thinking it must be the Broncos for Monday Night Football. That was always uh, – when I was back in Colorado, that always happened. When the Denver played on the Monday night, it was snow, and the resorts loved it. But it sounds like they played yesterday and got slaughtered again. Yeah, I don't know if the Broncos are good enough this year to even be offered a Monday night slot. Maybe uh, ESPN took that away from them. They're so terrible. Uh, they had a heartbreaker loss to the Indianapolis Colts on a last-minute field goal. Um, this is not a football podcast, though. I, If the Broncos were good, I would talk more about it, but it's terrible. My team sucks. They're bad. Um, I, I, maybe, you know, I feel like I should take up, like, start following a different team sport, maybe, like, like hurling that Irish sport where they, everyone just wha- runs around, whacks each other with sticks and throws a ball around. Are there any good team sports in Spain besides the obvious of soccer that maybe I could get involved in? Well, you know, there's rugby. Hang out there with Garrett Thomas. Hang around, watch some rugby. You know, it's kind of American football without pads. You know, that's a good sport. NBA starting Bat- up. Maybe that's what I could start following again. Yeah, I was going to say basketball is quite big here in Spain. Quite a few of the guys play, uh, Spanish, Spanish guys play in the NBA league. But you're right. We're here to talk about cycling, not about uh, ball sports. The, you know, it's going into the, the offseason, Fred. But the big talk of the town, of course, is the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia have shown us what's in store for next year. That's right. On today's episode, as Hudia said, we're going to talk all about – we're going to break down the routes. Uh, we have both the route release for the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia – 
and we're gonna we're gonna have some initial takes, some takeaways. Um, you know what these two very different, very contrasting routes mean for fans of the sport, as well as what it means sort of in the historical context for both races. Uh, then uh, well, we have a real treat hoodie. Second part of the show, I have an interview with Miss World Champion herself, Annemiek van Vluten. I connected with Annemiek this past week, and we talked all about her World Championship winning ride, uh, her thoughts on Chloe Deigert, who handily beat her in the individual time trial, and some other things. So we're psyched to have Annemiek phoning in from the Netherlands. Uh, let's get to it, though. So as is the case in October... This is just dead season, you know. We're all we're all like compiling our um our lists of like and arguing over like who's the top cyclist of the year and best performances in these various awards. And uh ASO and RCS then surprise us. Well, they don't surprise us. They release the route for the ensuing year's tour and the Giro. Tour goes first, Giro's usually a week later, and uh we saw this a week and a half ago. Tour de France route comes out and it's just it's 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 all innovative. I mean, it's like the uh, the tech bro of uh, Grand Tour routes. Like hardly any stages over 200 k's. Bunch of sharp, steep climbs. A an, an uphill time trial coming on the penultimate day, and just you know a, an embodiment of modern Grand Tour philosophies. Andy, what were your thoughts? when you saw this route come out. Yeah, it's been interesting, Fred, like you said, how there's been some tendencies in cycling over the last uh, decade or so. We've seen organizers get more creative in looking at their course design, thinking outside the box, you know, really looking at ways to kind of just make things more interesting in a modern day context of, uh, you know, people, the attention spans for fans these days, you know, cycling has to be relevant in the, in the 21st century. And we, I think we saw the Welta really kind of at the vanguard of that. And then the Giro was taking the climbs to places like the Zoclan, the Finestre, you know, these kind of wild, uh, incredible climbs. And the tour seemed like it was kind of hanging on to the traditional, it's kind of role, it's legacy event. It didn't want to mess too much with the formula. But we've seen the tour event just even in the last couple of years really get on that bandwagon as well. You know, Prudhomme does not like the prologue. Prologue's gone. We haven't seen a prologue, I think, in four tours. Didn't like time bonuses. He's brought him back. Uh, started to spice things up. And so that evolution has come on as well at the Tour de France. And we've really seen it to its fullest extent right now with this 2020 route. It's it's the year I wrote a story last week. It's the year the tour became the Welta. Yeah, I mean, look at this thing. We have a summit finish on stage four. We have two mountainous stages to cap off the first week of racing, stages eight, stages nine. Um, I mean, this this third week looks hard. I mean, there's stages 16, 17, and 18 where you're going into the Alps. And let's see here. Oh, stage Stage 16, bunch of one, two, three, four, f- five categorized climbs. But what gets me is there it's all squished into these short parkour. So, you know, the, the you're seeing a lot of like 155, 165 kilometer stages. Where in years past, uh, when the tour was trying to get innovative, they'd throw like uh, a 100K stage in or like 117K with, you know, three big climbs squished in there. It seems like this year they're sort of settling on the 168-kilometer mountain stage with a bunch of climbs in there uh, to try and get people to go early. Um, You know, 
look, as is the case with all these tour routes, I think they're very blatantly um, designed to try and uh, throw a big hurdle at Team Sky slash Team Ineos and the controlled style of racing. Um, when you see this course, I mean, do you think that they've hit the nail on the head? I mean, do we think that this is going to persuade riders to take chances and to break up the monotony of this controlled racing that we've seen over the last decade? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a very interesting course. Uh, you know, personally, I would like to have seen a little bit more time trialing. I mean, I know the argument in cycling is that time trials suck the life out of a race. A guy like a Dumoulin or a Froome can take a minute, two minutes out of the GC rivals, and that really just clamps down the race. Um, in this course, that's what I think is missing, really, to kind of give it more of a balanced feel. Even the final, you know, the final time trial that we do see, climbing time trial up at uh, – Belfield, you know, that's not going to, you know, that's obviously one It's not tilted towards the pure roller. So it's a, it's a climb heavy course, but, you know, looking back at these race distances, I think it's quite an interesting take on, you know, what we see as the fan uh, watching these races, because when you look at it, it's basically about an hour less a day of racing yeah. when that distance, you know, 168 as opposed to, you know, 200, that's, that's about an hour racing. So what does that, what does that give you? Is it, you think, well, gee, that must be easier. But in fact, it's not easier, even though the, you know it does the, the the day in day out of racing and the longer race like at the Giro, where you're we'll talk about that in a minute. But all those stages are over 200 plus, almost is the average, you know. So that does that want that grinding does take its toll over the course of three weeks. But what does that do? It just makes the race that much more dynamic because they are racing a shorter distance and they are be able to race it harder. It's not pacing yourself and saving your matches for that end of that third week at this Tour de France. It's all set up to to, to really benefit a rider who's willing to take chances in that first week in the first half of the tour and i think that 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 shorter racing that one hour less in the saddle will just open up the race because it's like they'll be racing full on for four hours as opposed to pacing for three and then racing hard for two i was pretty surprised when i was at the uae tour earlier this year and i was talking to all the riders and asking them about the grand tours hey what's the most scenic grand tour which grand tour has the best food which one do you look forward to doing the most and of course i started asking the like which is the hardest grand tour and a surprising number of them said the welta which i thought okay that makes sense it's the end of the season people are in weird fitness you know people there's a certain amount of desperation so maybe the peloton is a lot faster but no they all said the same thing yeah it was a short stage thing they're like ah you know the welta has made the stages short with these punchy crazy climbs in it and that just that just eliminates an hour of riding around racing it means every day is full on because there's usually some um, obstacle be it a steep climb or whatever where gc could be altered and the whole the action is compressed into like 160 to 180 Ks and so you know the the overall wattage output is about the same. The amount of work done is about the same, but it's just done in a fraction of the amount of time. Which, you know, if you're geared for that, then that's your type of race. And if you're a slow burner, um, that ray that that may hurt for you. So yeah, when I mean when this Tour de France course was released, I, I mean the first guy that I started thinking about was Tom Dumoulin. Was like, boy, Tom Dumoulin. Here he has been this great version of the modern Grand Tour rider of the time trialist who has taught himself to climb, who is going to be able to hang with the pure climbers on most of the big climbing days. Maybe he gets distanced on some of the longest uphill finishes, but he he keeps them in check. 
and waits around for that final individual time trial where he blows by him. I mean, that's how he won the 2017 Giro d'Italia. And I just assumed that that was the recipe success for success with the Tour de France because the Tour always leaned heavily towards having individual time trials. And then I saw this race course get released, and I'm like, oh, boy, I bet Tom Dumoulin is like, uh, you know, he's, he's kicking a rock somewhere. He's yelling at the sky because... You know, this definitely bucks the trend of the Garrett Thomas, Tom Dumoulin, Chris Froome, time trialist who can climb type trend. Yeah, I agree with you, Fred. That's the first thing I thought, too, when I saw this. I'm like, poor Tom Dumoulin. Here's the guy who came along, you know, who's really going to have those qualities to take on the Ineos Sky train. And he just hasn't got a tour route that's really well suited for him. I mean, last year we saw him. He went to the Giro because the Giro route was better for him. And looking at these two courses, again, the Giro is better suited for him. But it's not so much that it's it's the anti-Sky, anti-Froome course. The big takeaway for me when I saw this was this is a pro-French course. This is like tailor-made for Philippe or Pinot to finally win the Tour de France for a Frenchman since 1985. So, they, you know, the, the, the Tour de France denies profusely that they, deny, they designed the course for any one particular rider or style. They like to mix it up, they say, and they like to try to have a well-balanced – but, man – you put Philippe of last year on this course next year, man, you might have that French winner. Yeah, or, um, you know, even Thibaut Pinot. I mean, when I looked at some of these stages, it did bring up the uh, stage 15 of this past year's Tour de France, which was in the Pyrenees, which was that really rainy, chaotic day where Philippe had to defend. I believe Pinot went on to win the stage or attack and distance. Or no, he that, that was when uh, Simon Yates won and uh, Pinot distance, and we really started to think of Pinot as a, a contender for the uh, the yellow jersey. But yeah, I mean, that was another day where it was like cat one, cat one, cat one, cat one in, you know, 167 or 170Ks. And so, you know, maybe that's, that's just a thing. They're, they, they want the Frenchman to win. Um, they want the chaotic course that prevents uh, controlled racing. But there's a flaw in this plan, Andy Hood. There's a big old flaw. And that flaw goes by the name of Egon Bernal. Um, because the other thing is, I mean, when I saw this course, I was just like, well, you know, this course is for the best climber out there. And Egan Barnell, I think right now, uh, is the best climber. Now in the past few days, Bernal has been releasing comments kind of, well, the Giro looks pretty good. Well, the tour looks good. Well, if Froome's fit, I'm have no problem riding for uh, Froome. But I got to think that deep down inside Egan Bernal, Looked at this tour route and was just like, ah, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, ASO, for designing a course perfect for me. <laughs> Muchas gracias, <laughs> Terry Govenu. Yeah, I thought this course, it is it is a, a climber's course, but it's almost more like a puncher's course to me, yeah. really. But having said that, 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 there's some stages there in that second half of this of this course, that new climb at, uh, up to Marybelle. Just looking at the profile of that and talking to some people that have ridden that, they say that is one of the hardest climbs that's ever been in any any Tour de France course ever. The Col de Lose up in uh, – it's got this big ridge that separates Maribel from uh, Courchevel skiers. I've actually skied there in the winter. I remember coming down that face and just looking at the profile of the climb. It's, it's basically – it kind of stair steps along this ridge 
always 10%, just some, you know, it's basically a ski service road that turns into a go path and they paved it over. So that's going to be an epic climb and then Grand Colombier. So it is, it is a climb. It is a course for pure climbers. But what I liked about this course, when I first kind of thought, saw it, I thought, ah, this is kind of gimmicky. You know, the tourists maybe getting a little bit desperate here to remain relevant. But now that I've been looking at it, kind of, you know, sitting on it for a week, I kind of, I really, it started to grow on me. I kind of like the idea how they've done this course, you know, starting the Alps, you know, they've twice across the Massif Central, you know, starting the Alps and back in the Alps, take it to the Jura Mountains for the final time trail, you know, weave in a little Pyrenees, you know, it just leaves out all of Northern and Western France, which typically the tour typically does not do that. They try to like kind of include some of those Northern parts of the race, which I think leads to some of these kind of, uh, you know, the traditional tour route was always to have these long promenades across the big wheat fields and the sunflower fields across Brittany and Normandy. And that kind of led to this whole dynamic that the tour was cool, boring, or these flat stages were boring and that they really couldn't match the Giro or the Welta for that kind of that first half, first week explosiveness. But they've done it here, you know, starting in Nice, man, they don't, the tour doesn't get down to Provence that often just because they don't like to take the race down there in the summertime, shut all the roads down, but they got a nice deal and they kind of keep it off the coast. They take it right up into the high, the, you know, the, the Maritime Alps up there right away. And then boom, right into the, the massive central. They don't really go right into the heart of it, but they kind of skirt it on the Southern side, going across from uh, east to west and then the skirt, the North side of it. So I don't know, man, this is an unrelenting, unrelenting tour route. The more you look at it, even the so-called flat stages, there's no guarantee those will be sprints either. So, you know, the sprinters are the big, big losers of this tour because you're going to have maybe four or five, maybe, maybe six days for the the pure sprinters. So, you know, the guys like uh, the Caleb Ewans and, the, and the, you know, Mark Hammond just trying to come back and win, you know, tie, break Merckx's record, that's going to be tough. So who are some names that come to mind? I mean, Egan Bernal, Juliana Philippe, Thibaut Pino, Chris Froome, obviously. I mean, do we see this as a course for a uh, Simon Yates, perhaps? What about uh, Mika Landa or Richard Carapaz? And what about the danger man, uh, Primoz Roglic? I mean, he's such an, a good climber and a, and a good GC rider, but, you know, he's such a strong time trialist that you wonder if maybe the Giro is a little bit suited for him. Who are some other names that are just coming to mind when you look at this tour route? Yeah, I think you checked them all off. I think the guy that is most interesting to me right now for the Grand Tour riders is Roglic. Uh, you know, had such a phenomenal season this year. You know, winning that Welt is just going to take him to a whole nother level in terms of his confidence, his experience for that whole organization. You know, Jumbo Visma, they got the team now to take it to Sky Ineos. So that's, I think, it's going to be one of the big stories really in this whole Grand Tour racing season because they have the numbers really at the top of their of their roster to bring strong teams with Dumoulin coming on. They get the guys that can bring a strong team to all three Grand Tours just like just like Ineos can. So, uh, you know, you see you see you see this course really, I think, quite good, really well suited for uh, Roglic more than Dumoulin. So it'll be interesting to see how that team kind of works out that, that kind of, uh, you know, power structure within their, within their roster. But the guy that immediately jumps out is, is Pino and or Roglic with the obvious mention of Froome and Bernal. What about Pogacar? Yeah, what about Pogacar? This could be a Pogacar route. Yeah. You know, we'll see how he we'll see how he comes out of uh, you know his first season. You know, he surprised everyone at the Welta. But you're right, man. It, the way he was racing at the Welta, if he could do the same thing at the Tour, yeah, watch out. He could be podium contender for sure. 
Well, we're going to follow that. We're going to keep going. Tade Pokachar. That would be awesome if you came out and just won the thing. Uh, let's look at the Giro. So uh, a week later, Giro releases its course. And if the tour is zigging, then the Giro is zagging because we have three individual time trials, uh, almost 60 kilometers of total time trial. Uh, we have a brutal brutal third week with three big mountain stages we have one two three four five six seven eight nine ten stages over 200 kilometers in length the tour has one the giro has 10 uh including this monster flat 251k course that comes on stage 19 if the tour (laughs) is your cool innovative millennial cousin who's really into like you know uber and tech and disrupting things the giro d'italia is uh trying to go back to like you know 1913 when they still had 400 kilometer stages (laughs) (laughs) yeah this was uh this was a course for the traditionalists you know this is a course your grandpa would recognize um definitely old school features in this in this route time trials you have uh those big long hard mountain stages you know it, it kind of it does follow the pattern of of the giro really over the last i'd say 10 years you know since venues kind of taken over the race um they've they've alternated every two years starting outside of italy you know so bringing the race to this you know a new exotic market that's been a trademark of the of the giro the last few years interesting wrinkle there when you look at the route no rest day between uh Hungary and going down to Sicily. It's going to ruffle some feathers because there's a new UCI rule on the books for next year that says Grand Tours could only have an extra rest day every four editions. Mm. You know, how, how they, you know, the Giro has been going to all these places uh, up to uh, Denmark, out to Israel by starting their race on the Friday. They started that back when they went to uh, Belfast about uh, eight years ago, whatever that was. And they said, okay, we'll just start the race on the Friday race three days in, in the, some exotic locale, fly everybody in, have a, the rest day, then kick the race off on the, on, you know, back in the Italian soil. But they kind of want to save their matches because they have to play with this new limitation. So they want to maybe keep that in their pocket for even go more even further away because there's talk they want to try to take the Giro. You know, there's always these whispers of trying to get it to, to New York or United Arab Emirates, you know, who knows where, you know, wherever they try to take the, the Giro, they want to keep that extra day in their pocket. So, you know, they're flying from Hungary down to Sicily uh, and then racing the next day. You know, the next day, it's a relatively short course, 135 uh, kilometers. The next day, 150. But that next day is a, is a summit finish on Mount Etna. So there'll be a lot of guys that aren't too happy about that scenario because, uh, you know, if you're a pro racer, you know, you want to get your massage, your recovery, you know, have a proper rest. And to throw in a, a big transfer like that and do it in the context of the Giro d'Italia, brother, let me tell you, this is not smooth sailing with logistics when it comes to some of these uh, race transfers. It's a lot of standing around. Remember that two years ago, we, we went from uh, Tel Aviv over to, uh, well, to Sicily, and everyone was standing around the airport like for three hours waiting to get on the plane, and, and no one was too happy. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be an interesting talking point in the first half of that Giro for sure. Yeah, and I think this Giro is again set up to try and create – um, excitement and drama and just chaos in this final third week. Um, you know, you look at it, you have the final ITT, 16.5K, not so long that the pure time trialists can just like bank on it 
as their winning effort. But, you know, long enough so that the pure climbers do need to have a bit of a buffer. But then it's these three big mountain days that I'm sure they're hoping for, you know, front runners to collapse, uh, slow burners like Vincenzo Nibali to find their legs and soar and generally for there to be lead changes. Now, this is I don't know. I feel like the, the Giro is always going for this this plan, you know, trying to have like drama in the final week and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't so 2016 it obviously worked that's when nibbly came from behind kreiswick hit the snowbank um you know great stuff like four days of just all-out excitement uh 2017 eh, it was all right i mean tom dumoulin had to basically keep nairo quintana in check you know seed pink to him but keep him uh within you know a couple of minutes and then beat him in the time trial obviously 2018 18 is when the big chaos happened when when Froome did his stage 19 giant attack but then this past year you know I, I felt like it was it was kind of another Giro course I felt like it was a Giro course that was set up to try and have a lot of the fireworks sort of end of the second week and then have some tough stages in the third week in case someone would crumble but it didn't really happen I mean Richard Carapaz um took pink and he was very tactically smart and very strong and we didn't we didn't really have that final week explosion or final week uh crumble so i don't know i mean the game plan is there it's now it's just kind of up to the riders to see whether or not there's going to be an early front runner who can hold it so because you feel like okay 8.6 kilometer opening time trial it's almost like a prologue length length um, some GC favorite or secondary favorite is going to take that. Then you have another week one summit finish in Etna, and that's where like the that's where the early front runner is going to grab it, right? I mean, and then the question is basically, he who wins on Etna or takes pink on Etna, does he have the team and the legs to try and defend it for uh, you know the next sixteen stages, or do you let it go? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it could make for an interesting and dynamic race. Yeah, I think it's got to set up for that classic tug of war between the time trialists and the attacking climbers because, uh, like you said, the first really first half of this Giro has two time trials and just really the only serious mountain climb before that second individual time trial is the Mount Etna. So you could really see a rider like if, say, Dumoulin did race the Giro or there's talk that Garrett Thomas might race the Giro as well. You know, guys like that, they really, you know, take a lot of time out of the climbers and really go into the final week with a huge head start. And then also having in your back pocket a time trial waiting in that final day in Milano. Uh, that's kind of that always that dynamic that the, the, the Giro wants between the, the the classic time trial climber rider and the pure attacking rider. And that's what the idea of a time trial is you have just enough of a time trial that it forces the attacking guys to really have to attack even that much more because they neither had need, need to have a head start or they're overcoming a deficit that they lost in the time trial. Yeah, the Giro course, I think it, it's a traditional course. Not a lot of surprises other than the fact that it starts in Budapest. That's going to be pretty cool up there. Uh, some interesting stages really in the last week, you know, some just really old school kind of that stage that ends in Sestriere goes over the Agnello up and over this wire, the Mont Ginevra, and then back and up into this even higher kicks up there to the finish line this year. You know, that's going to be one of those grinding final weeks where people can crack and get some stuff that happened uh, with Yates and Froome and those guys in 2018. Or you could have a kind of a fizzle, like you said, with uh, last year where things 
just couldn't do it so hard that no one could really make any moves. So we'll see. This I think it's gonna be an interesting contrast. You know, is it gonna be the newfangled, you know, new look Tour de France will be more exciting, or will the Giro? kind of in the old school traditional race actually serve up the, the big fireworks. I think it'll be the tour, but I think the Giro will put forth a good show. So who are some names that uh, come to mind for this Giro? I mean, obviously you mentioned Garen Thomas, Tom Dumoulin. Uh, I think Vincenzo Nibali, knowing how hard that third week is, he's a guy you got to throw in there. I think Chris Froome and Primoz Roglic. I mean, you know, Roglic is tapped for the Tour de France, but hey, the, the Giro is starting in Hungary that's not far from Slovenia. Um, so, you know, Rigoberto Uran, maybe, Stephen Kreuzwick, Balka Molema, Alejandro Valverde. Who are some other Grand Tour names that come to mind for this Giro? Yeah, we got Landa. You know, Aru needs a good ride. There's a lot of guys. You know, maybe Quintana will do it, even though he's talking that he'll do the uh, Tour de France. But, of course, the big news this past week of who's going to be racing the Giro will be Peter, Mr. Peter Sagan racing the Giro for the first time of his career. Great news for Sagan fans. Bad news if you like to see Peter Sagan in person at the Tour of California. For the first time in his career, he will not be racing in California, he'll be at the Giro. So just having Sagan there, that'll add. Just having the Sagan show at the Giro will just kind of give it a nice little kick that the, you know, they'll be on the front page of uh, La Gazzetta every day with Sagan there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as bummed out as the organizer of the Tour of uh, Tour of California must be to lose Sagan. I actually think it's time. I think it's time. We need a year off from Peter Sagan. I love Peter Sagan. It's great to have him at the race, but I don't know. The last few years, you know, is. When he's getting up there and talking to the media and talking to fans, he's kind of, I don't know. It seems like he, it seems like we talked about this earlier uh, in the year. He needs something to spice it up. I think Sagan needs a new challenge and maybe throwing the Giro Tour double into his racing program is going to be the, I don't know, the electric shock therapy to like get him jazzed up. Because I feel like the past year he was a little, I don't know. He just, he just didn't seem to have his same Sagan luster. Yeah, I, you're right. I think some of the insiders I've talked to, they say the most, the hardest part about Sagan is keeping him interested, keeping him engaged in the sport. And, you know, next year, Fred, he'll be 30, you know, still a spring chicken compared to me and you. But that's pretty long in cycling years. And we've seen how, you know, he's been at the top of the sport since he's been 20. So really a decade at the elite of the sport. And we've seen guys already just suffer from burnout, not not so much even physically, but, you know, mentally and emotionally. And so a change is good because he's basically raced ever since he did the Tour de France for the first time in 2012. He's raced the same calendar. You know, it's been early season. Then you go to the classics, first big peak there. Then you do California, Tour de Suisse, go to the Tour, win the green jersey, rebuild again for the Worlds. And it's worked out highly successful for me. He's won monuments. He's won three world titles. He's won seven green jerseys. He's won record number of stages at the Tour of California. So it is maybe time for a change because when you see Peter Sagan on the bike, you know, it's that instinct still kicks in. You can tell he still loves racing his bike, but you get to definitely get the feeling that he's kind of bored of everything else that's around being a professional. So this could be just just what he needs. And it's certainly going to help the Giro every year. They like to have one big name, you know, one non-Italian star to come to the Giro. You know, two years ago, it was Froome. Contador always came in. Dumoulin won a few years ago. So it's perfect for Venier to hang his hat on the Sagan train. And it could be just what Sagan needs to kind of keep things spiced up for him. I think he needs to throw maybe, uh, okay, so you can do, uh, let's see, your tear down under and then do like, uh, yeah, the classics and then uh, Giro and then Dirty Kanza. Maybe you could do Dirty Kanza. 
Maybe you could do like a BMX race or a mountain bike race. Maybe do go up to Crankworks um, and then finish it off with a Red Bull Rampage. That's what you should do. There you go, Peter Sagan. Finish your season off with a Red Bull Rampage. That's the way. That's the way, you know. That's the way it's going. You know, got Vanderpool racing and everything. So why not? Um, well, I, you know, I, I'm happy. I always get happy and get jazzed up when they release the routes for the next year. Even though you know we all do the same thing, which is scrutinize them and mull over them and say, "Oh, this route is perfect for so and so. This route is perfect for so and so." And then we're completely proved wrong. But uh, between the tour and the uh, between the tour and the Jira, which one do you like more, hoodie? 2020 tour, 2020 Jira. Which one? Which one's more your cup of tea? Yeah, you know, I have to say, the more I've been, you know, stewing on this, I really like that tour course. It's just so different for the tour, and uh, I like I like the way that, that the way it's laid out, and and Govenu and Prudhomme, they're they're obviously not afraid to test the boundaries of what a Grand Tour looks like. I think sometimes they're saddled by this kind of sense of tradition and history of the tour. But uh, I really like this route, actually, the more I look at it. So I'm looking for, I mean, I'm looking forward to the Giro every year. I love going to Italy every year and covering that race. It's always uh, exciting. love going to the Welta. You know, a lot of times between us, you know, we'll complain about how much the tour, it's not fun to go to just because it's so much work, so much stress. You're in France. It's not easy to move around sometimes. But looking at this route has definitely got me jazzed about going to the Tour de France next year. I'm right there with you. I actually looked at the Giro route, and I was kind of like, eh, wake me until week three or wake me until week two and a half you know i feel like it's a great jiro to watch the last six seven days of but maybe the first part you can skip if you're not the hardest hardcore fan but the tour i think the tour is cool um you know so much of what i loved about this previous about the 2019 tour de france was thibaut pino julian alaphilippe and egan bernal and again that stage 15 through the pyrenees when it was rainy and dynamic and thibaut pino dropped everybody and looked like he was going to be a big contender for the win so if we can bottle that up and spread it out over three weeks of racing, then I think the the tour is it's done something right. Well, we're gonna keep telling all, we're gonna keep following all the storylines as we uh, build towards the 2020 Giro and 2020 Tour de France. And I think in the next coming weeks, hoodie, we're gonna do our own sort of awards for the season storylines we're looking ahead towards in 2020, and uh, you know, dredging up the other talking points from this very quiet time of the season. So with that, I think we're going to get, again, we're going to get on to the Anamik Van Vluten interview. Andrew Hood, I will let you get back to your evening there in Spain. Stay warm, and I will talk to you next week. All right, Fred. Thanks. Uh, my guest today on the Velo News podcast, I'm very excited to have Anamik Van Vluten, the recently crowned Road World Champion, uh, calling in from the Netherlands. Anamiek, thanks so much for making time for us. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a pleasure for me. So, so Anamiek, we're a couple of uh, weeks um, uh, away from your really thrilling win in the World Road Championships. And earlier this year, we had you on the podcast and you talked about the disappointment of the 2018 Road World Championships, how you felt the course really catered to you and you had this early crash in the injury, which um, kept you from doing a big attack. And I'm curious if the emotion and the feeling and the disappointment from 2018 at all motivated you coming into 2019, especially to do this, this long range attack. Now, I don't need more uh, extra motivation. Um, <laughs> 
No, not at all. Um, but the win made it more special to have last year's disappointment and also a not so nice off season for me, like uh, sitting uh, for eight weeks with my uh, by with a broken knee and uh, at home, and not going be able to celebrate my my successful 2018 season. And then to have such a dream season. Yeah, so it didn't need extra motivation. I, but I was more like, for this World Championships, I was a bit worried that it didn't suit me so well. Mm-hmm. So that made it also very special that I, yeah, I saw a chance, I took it and I finished it off. And in, uh, yeah. So now, several weeks later, when you think back to this World Championship ride, this big, long attack, um, what are some of the memories that are still very vivid from you out there on the bike? Um, some memories or some scenes that still are very fresh in your mind? Yeah, I think first when I attacked on the hill and then it suddenly became silent around me, uh, really quickly actually, I attacked and normally you hear the, the small sounds of bikes around you and it, it became silent, not silent on the side of the road though because there were so many people cheering so that's also something I will remember. Uh, but yeah, the, um, and then after the descent, uh, when I was all alone and, and you know, you, you look at your, uh, at my Garmin route and said like, oh, still 100k to go. <laughs> then, um, yeah, I had a little bit, I was a little bit worried. So I also remembered it very well. That, yeah, so the adventure was a bit like 40, 50 seconds for 45 to 50 kilometers. And I felt like I'm, I'm losing it here. So, um, yeah, and then the last memory is, I think, uh, when I, in the last three kilometers, when I uh, started to enjoy all the people that were cheering for me, like, uh, really, I I put my head a bit up upright, and I really want to soak it all in all the moments, all the people that were out there. It was the fans in, in Yorkshire are really the best. So they were amazing. They were also cheering for me, um, and they really supported me well. Uh, it was a it was a crazy world championships with all the people there. So it was yeah, the local labs were uh, were super cool. Now, your move, I mean, its a lot has been written about it. This was over 100 kilometers to go. It was on the course's big climb, and it ended up being decisive. When you launched that move, was that your intention to try and make this a solo move to win it? Or did you have other strategic or tactical goals in mind for the Dutch team? I think in general we uh, we had a meeting and uh, we, we saw that that climb and we we know our strengths in the team and we also want to play all our strengths so that is also make it hard on the climbs with our climbers and then we also had like still Marianne Voss and all the other girls uh, behind in the group uh, so we yeah we it, we felt like it was the best tactical decision to to play it like this like uh, put pressure on everyone make everyone tired and uh, still have a lot of cards to play also uh, when the group uh, group would uh, come back maybe so um, it played out super well with uh, having me in the front Anna van der Breggen was a really good one to have in the group behind me because she did a lot of good work for me also to defend uh, for me and if it would come back uh, we had her uh, car to play she could attack and then even in the group there behind we had Marianne Voss uh, it was like she had, would have a, a free ride uh, to the front so yeah, I think uh, we played our cards really well that day, and uh, that's uh, that's how it was our strategic. So everyone had a chance. It was not that it was me or Mariano or Anna that were the only leaders. We we played out like everyone will get a chance, and uh, yeah, it, it could also be that all the Dutchies were, would be there in the final uh, in the local laps, and then we should uh, would just attack with everyone there. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say the plan. 
uh, worked out uh, pretty well. You know, so we're Americans. We came into this as fans. We came into this race uh, with our eyes on uh, Chloe Digert because Chloe had won this Colorado Classic race, all four stages. She's done so well on the track, but had never uh, really competed too much in uh, international road racing. And after she won the time trial, um, a lot of us, it, it opened our eyes. Wow, she could be a real danger woman for the road race. I'm curious if that was the same for the Dutch team. Did you have your eyes on Chloe Digert coming into World Championships? And how did your perspective on her change after her time trial win? Actually, my perspective didn't change after the time trial. I was telling <laughs> that I had the media interviews with Dutch media. I said, like, oh, watch Chloe Dargaard because before the time trial, they were talking about, oh, you will win this time trial. I was like, nah, I know a girl that came fourth already in 2017 in the Bur- in Bergen where I won the time trial. She was only 20 years old then. And also one year later, I met her on the track where she uh, in the World Championships uh, Appledorn when she had a world our uh, world uh, record there on the individual pursuit, and she led me. So uh, no, I, I knew uh, uh, Chloe Dargaard already before. That's an amazing talent, and so that she's working together with Kirsten Armstrong. I knew she's so strong. She's so well prepared. I followed her results in the Colorado Classic. So now all the all the girls from the Dutch team were aware of uh, her crazy talent. <laughs> Although she surprised me a bit. It's, uh, also, she's a really skillful rider. So I didn't I didn't race against her. So I felt like maybe if you're racing only in America and you're a bit more time trial specialist, sometimes you see that they are not so skillful. Um, but uh, <laughs> I saw a time trial and she took a lot of risk and she's pretty skillful. So now also the technical skills are, are really uh, well uh, developed uh, with uh, Chloe. So I think she's a very uh, interesting uh, rider for the future and also very, uh, very uh, interesting uh, person to follow next year in the road race. I hope she will race more in Europe, uh, actually. You know, with the time trial, you had said afterwards that you didn't, you, you felt like you were not, uh, perhaps on your best day. Looking back on the time trial, I mean, how much do you think you were missing? Let's say, Anamik, you are at your best. What do you think was uh, possible in the time trial for you this year? Oh, yeah, I didn't have a good day. I, I thought at my power output uh, afterwards um, and also felt like after five minutes, I went out and then immediately I felt like my legs were exploding, mm. full of lactic acid already. Usually the feeling you have like, it's uh, five kilometers to go where you feel like the lactate acid is, is uh, building your legs. It's like your, your legs are screaming, your, your uh, pedaling squares in the last five kilometers. But now I started already to pedal uh, squares uh, after uh, five minutes. So I knew that I was not on a good day. Uh, maybe the weather also didn't help me. Um, so, yeah, I started a little bit to doubt myself um, because usually when I prepare, I'm, I'm, I'm usually always really good and I, I have a target. It, it also gives me some hope for uh, for Tokyo because I, if I would have been on a good day and then uh, two minutes uh, behind Chloe Dygert would be a really hard uh, job to uh, to come close to her in Tokyo. So uh, yeah, it was uh, it's just super cool to uh, to see how fast she went and I think it's also super cool for uh, women cycling that she uh, she's such a, yeah she showed such a yeah good talent and I think also the all the Dutch media were really impressed by her ride so it was also a bit a wake-up call for the Dutch media that there are more girls riding fast, <laughs> not only um, Dutch girls. Um, you know, Chloe Digert, she's going to race the road time trial and the track events in Tokyo. I mean, looking at her performance in the road time trial, do you believe that this makes her the favorite going into Tokyo in that event? 
yeah, for sure. Um, I think also the pressure is now a bit more on her, uh, which maybe is uh, nice for me. Uh, she showed such a big uh, advantage and big uh, big victory, and it showed that she's an amazing time traveler. So uh, yeah, she will have more pressure, uh, but uh, probably I think she uh, she will she can handle that. But um, yeah, I think she's a, a favorite, and uh, yeah, that's what I said. That was a really good break up for the Dutch media. That well, Annemiek van Vluten, congratulations again on your World Championship ride. It was a thrilling race to watch. And we will let you get on to your off-season. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, thank you for keeping me company during my long rides. Usually I listen a lot to your podcast, so I really enjoy it. So keep on, uh, continue the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.